0: The demand for food is poised to skyrocket. Also breaking at this moment, Leonardo da Vinci's world-famous painting, The Mona Lisa, has been attacked. Two protesters threw soup at the priceless artwork, which is protected by thick, bulletproof... Last week, the Mona Lisa at Paris' love Museum was the subject of an attack by environmental protesters who used the stunt to call for the right to healthy and sustainable food. No! So, what's behind their call for food security? And does their argument that we need more healthy and sustainable food have any merit? This week, we look at the critical challenge of feeding an ever-expanding global population. I'm Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrashim. Welcome to Put Simply. Ozan, good
1: to be back. It certainly is. and What a big topic we have this week. Last week, we chatted to Abdul Malik from CT Group. He's an expert in Indonesia, and uh, he spoke to us all about the uh, country's elections that are coming up. He put simply all of the, the drama, the twists, and everything to do with the Indonesian elections. If you haven't already, go and check it out on your favorite podcast platform. You have time before the voting takes place next week on
0: Valentine's Day. A romantic way to celebrate the day no doubt. Well let's set the scene for this week's episode and let me provide some stats to set this up. One, the world population is expected to hit 9.7 billion in 25 years time. Two, the UN says that today around 900 million people are experiencing hunger. Three, 2.4 billion people, that's around 30% of the world's population, are facing some form of food insecurity. Four, one-third of the food we produce globally is wasted. And so the topic of food security is paramount then on many levels. It really
1: is. And in recent times, we've had the perfect storm with a pandemic, wars and extreme weather patterns. Experts are labelling this as the three Cs, COVID, conflict and climate change. These factors, unfortunately, have reversed the trend of significant progress that was being made in alleviating hunger across the world in the past two to three
0: decades. Is that true, though? I mean, has progress actually been made? There's millions of people that are still hungry.
1: I had the same thought, Adam. And if you look at the data from the Food and Agricultural Organization, also known as the FAO, the prevalence of undernourishment decreased from 18.7 in 2000 to 8.9 in 2019. This certainly indicates some form of progress, but it's still far from perfect and certainly far from where we need to be. And it's what we'll try to put simply with our guests this week. Duke Hip, is the Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at CropLife Asia, which is the leading voice of the plant science industry in Asia Pacific. Duke is a seasoned public affairs professional, having spent many years in the private sector as well as in the US government. We're also joined by Chris Argent. He's also an experienced public affairs and business leader with experience in both private sector as well as within government in Australia. He is currently the Head of Sustainability for Asia, Middle East and Africa region for Syngenta, one of the largest
0: agricultural companies in the world. Well, let's bring in the gentleman now, Duke Hip and Chris Argent, our guests this week here on Put Simply. Duke and Chris, welcome to Put Simply.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
2: Sure, I'll go first. This is Duke at at the CropLife Asia side. And, uh, you know, uh, I think at the crux of what we do at CropLife and what I'm working on, we do our best to enable and empower smallholder farmers around this region to really grow more food with, uh, you know, less impact to the world around us.
3: Yes, it's uh, Chris from Syngenta. And a big part of my role is how do we help farmers grow more produce, increase their productivity and profitability, while delivering better environmental outcomes through improved soil health, more efficient water use and biodiversity protection.
0: Duke,
1: let's start with you. Can you give us a, a bit of a picture and put simply the importance of agriculture to the world economy?
2: Uh, yes, of course. Glad to. Uh, the in the spirit of put simply, I'd say the impact is immense in, in a word. But to give you a little bit of detail with that, uh, I think the world the World Bank actually is, has noted that agriculture is the single largest employer in the world. And globally, I believe 40% of the population earns its income from agriculture. So that's that's a pretty compelling uh, uh, point right there, I think, in making the case for the, the role agriculture plays in the global economy. But even beyond that, I think the, the World Bank has noted that additionally, to, it's at the agriculture sector that responds most favorably to investment and growth. And in fact, I think growth is, is two to four times more than that of other sectors when it comes to raising incomes among the most Uh, poor parts of of society so so it is it plays a huge role in in a in a a very concise answer
0: so chris we've obviously just gone through a a major pandemic uh we've seen shutdowns and the like can you give us some insights as someone who works for a large agricultural company what's the situation for farmers at the moment in this post-covid world
3: yeah, thanks, Adam. Look, as we know, there were many detrimental impacts from COVID. And during the pandemic, there were increased threats to food supply. Uh, but pleasingly, many governments recognised the importance of ensuring food production continues and, and put in place measures to support the food system during this time. But there were impacts, uh, supply and logistic restraints uh, contributed to higher input costs for farmers and prices for produce varied considerably. Trade connectivity also became more difficult because some countries prioritise local food supply above exports. So that was a very volatile and difficult market for many. But there is some positives that come out of that, particularly in this post-COVID environment. Many of the systems and processes that support the agriculture industry had to become more efficient due to this pressing need. Um, the importance of a functioning global food system was in sharp relief during this time and measures to enhance its resilience can only be a good thing going forward. So that continued focus on higher value share for farmers and more efficient supply chains, um, increases in precision application of agriculture inputs like fertilizers and crop protection products, sets a strong foundation for driving not just better food outcomes, but better environmental outcomes. So I think there is some silver lining uh, from uh, COVID, but that focus needs to continue. How do we continue to improve so that farmers can get access to higher value markets, uh, grow more food with less, uh, and help reduce the impact of agriculture on the environment?
1: Duke, today's topic is food security. And uh, could you help us a little bit to really understand these terms and explain them, put them simply for our listeners? What is food security? We refer to food insecurity. Uh, and also, what's the difference between hunger and food insecurity? Particularly, if you could explain to us how these are measured by organisations like the UN and the FAO.
2: No, it's, a, it's a very good question. So, and I would, you're right. The FAO is probably the right source for, for that question as well. And the FAO defines hunger as being the insufficient consumption of dietary in- energy. Frankly, that does cause that that physical reaction that we 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 certainly have heard about and know about and uh, are aware of uh, that is hunger um, um and beyond that as far as how they measure that they have something called the prevalence of undernourishment they use that to help estimate what the you know looking at the different factions of society where hunger is most prevalent around the world so that's that side of it with food insecurity I think, again, looking at the FAO's description of that, really they define that as being that lack of regular access to enough safe and nutritious food that would stunt or uh, impact normal growth and development. And food insecurity can be at a variety of different levels. Um, it starts out with just um, you know a mild level, to moderate, and then on to severe and since we're talking about uh, those three different levels, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, that with Asia, in Asia here in, in particular, we have the um, dubious distinction of leading the world when it comes to. Uh, those individuals, the number of individuals most affected by moderate to severe, or the num- most, I guess, the number of people moderately or severely food insecure, it's over 1.1 uh, billion. So, so that's um, that's a quite a challenge that we face. Going back to what Chris had pointed out as far as the challenge around making sure we do have that access of safe, nutritious food, and they are interrelated, of course, as well as you as you as you noted um, as well. Someone who's food insecure. Um, would have certainly, uh, at a severe level, would have experienced hunger at some point as well. So they do. there's a, a crossroads there between the two.
0: A question for both of you now. Chris, you mentioned COVID already and the ramifications of, of the pandemic, but COVID's really one of what commentators call the three Cs. So the three Cs being COVID, conflict and climate change, which are sort of the main reasons for the increase in food insecurity. Can I ask you both to elaborate On each of these and the role they've played in in exasperating the problem and and, and any other factors that you
3: believe have contributed. I think those three factors do broadly cover the foundation of many of the issues in relation to food security or insecurity, because the consequences of all of these add complexity and uncertainty and cost to the entire supply chain and, and the food system. And it's it's those consequences that I think coming from that foundation that create some of these problems. If you look at climate change, for example, the extreme weather events that we, we are seeing more frequently, that adds even more uncertainty and complexity to an inherently uncertain industry, making farming you know, incrementally challenging. And also we see new pests and diseases uh, emerging because of changes in climates and microclimates. Uh, more localized diseases in some of the tropical areas, for example. So, the ability to broadly deal with some of these issues, I think, is becoming more difficult because of these more local impacts of some of these um, some of these factors. And if you look at conflict, um, well, clearly, um, when we think about the major conflicts that are ongoing in the world today, we're talking about countries that contribute a significant part of the commodities that the world consumes. And so supply chain disruptions, um, uh, insecurity of supply has far-reaching effects on trade uh, relationships, but also prices that farmers enjoy access to markets. All of those things that are already complex become even more complex, which goes back to the point of, you know, how do we eliminate inefficiencies and focus on what makes the biggest difference so that the system can broadly withstand uh, these increasing challenges. Challenges will remain. So uh, enhancing the uh, resilience of the system just continues to be critically important. Duke, what can you add here?
2: Yeah, no, no, I think that covers it quite well. I'd say with, with perhaps maybe with uh, the conflict and the COVID piece of source, of course we've experienced the the, the disruption, not the good disruption that we, we talk about with certain industries, but the disruption in a very bad way to global supply chains and certainly that impacts food food uh, supplies as well. I think with climate change, that is its own unique and, and mammoth challenge that we are all facing right now. And as Chris pointed out, you don't have to be an expert to look around this region and see the increase, the proliferation Rather, prevalence of uh, increased droughts and floods and erratic weather patterns that are really um, uh, creating a wreaking havoc on food production in this region. So, um, I will I will note one thing. Uh, we did a couple of years ago. We undertook a study around Southeast Asia to um, uh, get the perspective of Southeast Asians uh, uh, smallholder farmers, and uh, and on this particular topic, um, over sixty eight percent. The farmers, of course, not not a big surprise. Noted that they were really concerned with the impact climate change is having on on their work and on agriculture. Not surprising, again, as as Chris pointed out, with with climate change, we're also seeing more seeing more pests, weeds, and diseases to contend with. So it's uh, not a surprise, sadly.
1: Your organization, CropLife, has a number of members uh, amongst it, of course, Syngenta, Chris's organization, but many of the other large agricultural companies in the world, and really, CropLife acts as a bit of a voice for the industry. Can you put simply what is being done by the industry and also governments around the world to address the issue of food security? What are some of the challenges that you face in your advocacy work that you do?
2: Well, I'd say we work really hard and I think we're very good at... Creating, having those conversations and building relationships with stakeholders around this region to elevate uh, the great work and the innovative tech, uh, technologies that companies like Syngenta are producing that can make a big difference to farmers in this region, smallholders who really are you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, really existing in the margins in many in many cases. So we worked really hard on that. And I think, of course, we've got a great product to talk about when it comes to our, our members' products. I think the challenge with all of that is, no matter how great this technology is that we produce, whether in the plant science realm, the regulations aren't there to support that, to bridge that gap and to make sure farmers do have access to this Technology, these these game changing innovations, it doesn't mean anything, right? And I think that's that's the frustrating and the challenging part is working hard to ensure that uh, that it it does actually reach the farmer. It has to get to the farmer. So I think that's it in a nutshell.
0: Chris, you mentioned the importance of, of building resilience earlier in the industry. Could you put simply what can actually be done at the farm level to help address the issue, and and what are companies uh, like Syngenta, the one you work for? doing to help us grow more food in in a more sustainable way?
3: I think one of the key and complex problems in this regard is, you know, how do you balance the short and immediate term needs of farmers in terms of their livelihoods and income versus more medium and longer term sustainable requirements Um, like soil health management, um, for example? I mean, the healthy soil is the cornerstone upon which ecosystems food production sustainable livelihoods depend 95% of the food we rely on is derived from the earth's soil so successful agriculture and soil health are clearly inextricably linked so you know encouraging farmers to understand the current health of their soil how do we promote more widespread and affordable soil testing so we can get a baseline about the health of the soil how can we educate farmers and help them understand about um, processes to support that soil health management over time. And as Duke mentioned before, a big part of that is how do we get the latest uh, technology into the hands of farmers um, as quickly as possible to support the needs of ongoing sustainable agriculture. So there's there's short-term needs of income and and income security versus the longer-term needs of sustainable agriculture and management over time. And it's a really tough uh, challenge to try and deal with. So getting a bigger share of value to farmers, I think, is a really important part of that. How do we minimise supply and value chains, shorten them, get consumers closer to farmers so that that value that consumers are are willing to pay for in terms of sustainably grown produce can be um, enjoyed by farmers to help investment into these more longer term requirements to protect uh, sustainability of agriculture in the long term?
1: Duke, as you're aware, uh, we had COP28 last year in December in in Dubai. Um, This is the UN meeting that's held every year to tackle climate change. And at this particular meeting, more than 130 country leaders call for a global and national food systems to be rethought to address climate change. Put simply, is this development enough? And you mentioned a lot of challenges that you have faced in your work around regulations. What more needs to be done at the international level to address food security?
2: Yeah, it is a tough question, um, and rather than editorialize too much about all that, I would I would point out a couple of things that might be uh, of relevance. One thing is I'm I'm proud of the work we've done. CropLife Asia has done working with some of the different international and regional groups, Canada, U.S., uh, EU, ASEAN business councils, and ASEAN again is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Working with those groups to conduct some, some really some, I think some really important workshops around Southeast Asia, in particular, to gather inputs from stakeholders on, you know, where they see the pressure points, where they see the answers and solutions, and how we find a way forward to work together to make a difference. And so, uh, the results from that were very compelling, um, and uh, just more cooperation, access to technology, access to finance, a lot of things that are going to help farmers adapt and and really uh, persevere through through the challenge. Um, so that's one thing I, I think that, and more of that is helpful. And th- that, by the way, was fed into COP 27, fed into COP 28. But I would take a step back and, and just take a look at agriculture as well, and say, and, and consider that agriculture is a very in a very unique spot in a, as far as driving food security, and in the context of climate change, agriculture it, it is responsible for 11% of greenhouse gas emissions. That's 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 a, uh, what we we know. We also know that agriculture is is not. Uh, Yeah, it it does take take into account um, 70% of water use globally as well. It's a water intensive, um, you know, proposition. So, um, and when you consider traditional agriculture, like we have much of here in Asia, it's a very water intensive, again, activity. So there's that. But there's also the flip side of that, which is we know through plant science and other technologies, it can become much a part of the solution, really, really when it comes to food production and, and agriculture. Um, uh, the role that plant science can play, reducing carbon emissions, decreasing the use of fresh water, and really helping preserve biodiversity that's, that um, like Chris just mentioned earlier, not having to farm additional land to grow more food, being able to be more efficient and effective with the land we do have. So so it is a tough question. I wouldn't say that, the, again, editorialize about what, what more can be done internationally, but I think we're learning a lot here in Asia, and we and I think the more we can cooperate and uh, collaborate and, again, uh, highlight the, the role of innovation and technology, the, the
0: better. A question for both of you, again, we've painted a picture of the perfect storm here, right, of growing food. We need enough food, we need sustainable food, but on the other side of the coin, there's food affordability as well as food access, or access to food, rather. That's, you know, we need to make sure that people have access to enough and sustainable food let's throw in the mix here now the gender inequality issue the, the FAO says that women don't have the same access to agricultural resources as men and as such face higher levels of food insecurity than men across countries especially since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic so an easy question for the both of you Chris let's start with you how do we fix this?
3: you raise a really important and difficult point to to find a solution for. Because I mentioned before about the importance of, you know, higher value crops, more of that value going to farmers. So if we, you know, take that notion further, what that could mean is that produce becomes more expensive if they are higher value. And if you look at something like fruit and vegetables or those specialty crops, I think there are some possibilities there, as I mentioned before about getting consumers closer to farmers where sustainably grown produce like fruit and vegetables, there is definitely a consumer value in many parts of the world uh, for that and that, that demand is growing. But the commodity crops, um, you know, rice, wheat, soy, um, is there really a market for sustainable production there? And if, if rice became more expensive, um, then you have a huge problem uh, in terms of uh, food affordability, particularly in, in Asia. And so that, that, that can't be the solution. So I think, you know, there's a couple of things that, that spring to mind. It goes back to that efficiency that I mentioned before. How do we support farmers to make the right choices at the right time in terms of inputs um, like fertilisers and, and crop protection products? How do we uh, support them through technology to, to anticipate with more accuracy, pest and disease threats, and then more quickly, quickly diagnose what those threats may be, and have the solutions ready to be used more efficiently and reducing costs. So that's that's one way to do it. I think another way, and this is certainly burgeoning in terms of agriculture, is you know how do we reward farmers uh, for the change in practices that has an emissions reduction impact, for example, and again. Let's look at rice. Um, You know, rice is a significant contributor to methane emissions, uh, one of the greenhouse gases, uh, mainly because of, you know, the reliance on significant flooding and and water use. So how do we encourage farmers to change that behaviour? And really, it's about new business models, um, new revenue streams. Is there a way that we can connect farmers to the significant networks in relation to rewarding emissions reductions? And it's about that on-farm behaviour change. So there are some possibilities there to to generate uh, higher levels of income for farmers, um, which won't affect the price of produce. In relation to gender equality, in many parts of Asia particularly, um, that is definitely uh, an issue. And one of the approaches that we take with with the partners uh, that we work with is a a community approach. So what is the role um, of uh, women in the agricultural communities? And often it's things like um, uh, taking care of the finances, so helping with financial literacy, uh, access to microloans and encouraging that community approach to much of this. But it's also about uh, helping uh, women get access to that educative process that I mentioned before, Um, training uh, about uh, the best agricultural and sustainable practices um, and there is a lot of interest in that um, in, in this part of the world in indonesia for example we work uh, with a, a group of climate smart farming for, for women in agriculture in indonesia It starts with our own operations uh, our pakistan business was recently honored by the president of pakistan recognizing our support of female farmers and advancing their participation in agriculture I'm also very proud of our partnership with the Asian University of Women in Bangladesh, where we established scholarships for five women in agriculture to help them to break down barriers in this industry.
0: Duke, we speak about this holistic approach, right? I mean, that's tough, isn't it? No, I think
2: it's it's a fair fair point. And I think that's where the value, again, an association like CropLife has a role to play in bringing more stakeholders together to have that discussion so that we're not, as you said, we're not... You can get very very narrow narrow view into this, but again, how does this affect this group or that group? And how do we how do we make sure that uh, the rising tide again uh, raises all boats? Um, uh, and uh, and that's effectively what we're trying to do. One thing I do want to follow up with Chris on the um, the gender uh, issue as well. You're absolutely correct. You really can't write the story of of Asian agriculture and smallholders without that component, considering the critical critical role that women play uh, here, and particularly in Asia with with agriculture. They make up forty percent of the agricultural labor force and produce more than half of all the food that is grown globally. Um, so when you consider that fact, um, it's not only the right thing to do as far as promoting and advancing, again, access to technology and finance and all these issues as well that they face through gender disparity. It's also the right thing to do, right? It's also the smart thing to do economically. So, yeah.
1: Chris, over the last few years, we've seen uh, significant growth in the uh, alternative protein sector, so the alternative meat uh, sector. In this context, we're talking about um, products like Impossible Burgers, which, as you know, has has taken on quite a bit of success in in, in the commercial world. But then also we've got other alternatives such as chicken, seafood and meat uh, that has been grown um, through cells in in a lab environment, um, which at this stage hasn't been all that widely commercially available. What role do you think these sorts of alternatives to meat play in addressing some of the the problems that we might be facing with the food insecurity going forward. Do you think this is the silver bullet?
3: Yeah, like I think often with complex issues like food security, climate change, um, the need for more food with less impact, um, there's a great desire to simplify what a solution could be and look for silver bullets. But unfortunately, there just isn't one. Um, And I think, as you mentioned before, Erdem, about the a holistic approach. A complex problem is going to require a a range of solutions to deal with that problem and there's no doubt that plant-based proteins are one of those um, areas that that should be explored and continue to be supported but it's not going to change things overnight and fix, fix the problems we've been discussing. I mean, the complexity lies in things like um, consumer acceptance. Um, yes, there was has been significant growth in this sector. Um, But what's the ceiling? How how much more growth can there be based purely on consumer acceptability to those alternatives? The other thing is, you know, this disruptive change needs to be taken into consideration. The livestock industry, which is a big contributor to agriculturally derived uh, emissions, but it's also a huge employer and source of livelihood and income for many people worldwide. So what's the change management approach to that if we're going to really try and drive that change? So any benefits could be undermined um, if it's not sustainably managed and responsibly uh, governed change. So with such a complex problem, we need a multifaceted strategy. And and as I said, plant-based proteins are definitely one of them. But a comprehensive approach to food security also has to involve the improved agricultural practices that we talked about. More sustainable, less resource intensive. Uh, There's the issue of food waste. Um, a significant proportion of the food uh, produced is actually wasted a- along that process. Um, so the emissions used to grow that food is one thing. It's, it's, it's contributing to, to the, the problems, but also transportation uh, emissions. In every step of the, the supply chain, we have, we have waste. So how do we improve distribution systems to minimise the food waste problem? And ultimately, it's supporting innovations in food and agricultural technology, digital innovations, product innovations, better products and precision application uh, approaches. So it's multifaceted. I'd love to think there is a silver bullet, um, but I just don't think there will be and and can be. But we need to continue to explore a variety of options that can be available um, for for, uh, this industry and others to implement to try and do something about this tremendously important problem.
0: So let's fast forward, gents, to 2050. 9.7 billion people is what is estimated to be the population of Earth by that point. So what do we need to do differently to feed the world in a sustainable way? I mean, you've touched upon this already. I I want you to hone down on on what industry can do, what governments can do, what the public can do to ensure that we can achieve what we need to achieve. Let's start with you, Duke.
2: I think, you know, uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot that each of them are doing, in, in fairness, to each of those uh, government and industry and, and uh, NGOs and others that are all doing. I think, though, at the end of the day, the, the one thing is, is, I guess, break free of the mindset that it's an either-or proposition, right? To be sustainable to grow food is one is one approach, but to have robust food systems is another approach. And I'd say no. I'd say that they, they go hand-in-hand, hand, actually, that the more, the more you're able to uh, provide farmers, again, with what they need to grow more food on less land – if you're doing that, you're doing it in a sustainable way too. It can be done at the same time, and there, and we're seeing that. There are a lot of sustainability platforms. I know our members work with it with, and we work with uh, a variety of really good stakeholders, certification programs to certify certain commodities. They say this has been grown sustainably. You're seeing more and more of that, and I, I guess the more we can we can do in that space, and and where it's scalable, we can do it in a in a big way. That's a good day's work.
0: And Chris, your thoughts on that?
3: You know, I don't think it's too alarmist to say that you know there are ways of disruption sweeping through Asia particularly that are affecting economies and societies and agriculture. So population increases, um, it could be greater poverty, inequality, environmental disruption, loss of biodiversity through increased deforestation, uh, fragmentation of the agricultural industry. I mean, all these things are realities right now. And so unless interventions continue to to, uh, gain prominence now then then I think we are going to be on a dangerous path and that's why this issue is so pressing but at the risk of having painted a a despairing picture before I mean there are opportunities there are many opportunities right now that can drive that change and opportunities at at scale we've already talked about consumer preferences driving change Um, you know how can we shorten the time from farm to table uh, so the quality and freshness of food the consistency of supply is enhanced, so the consumers have a real benefit there, and technology can empower that. We've talked a lot about the importance of sustainability, um, so you know, even more emphasising education, uh, incentives, innovative agronomy, driving the move to more sustainable, regenerative farming practices. Over time, that will become the norm. That will make sustainable farming the best way to farm. and supported through opportunities in technology. And I think one of the most encouraging thing is, you know, it's often, what's that phrase? Follow the money. There is huge investment in agriculture at the moment, particularly from a tech perspective. And so, you know, with that investment, clearly that shows that the opportunities are widespread acceptance that they are there. Uh, And so... I think that's reason for, for optimism. We can drive this change to, to deal with these problems. Um, follow the money, the investments there. It shows that um, that there are opportunities that I think will benefit us all if we can channel that new money where it has the greatest effect.
1: Chris, you've mentioned on a number of occasions uh, utilising innovations and in technology
3: um, in,
1: in the way that, uh, or the work that, that uh, your company Syngenta does in supporting farmers. Could we drill a little bit further down into this um, and would you give us some examples of, of tangible tools that, that farmers may have today that they didn't have 10 years ago. I know AI has been um, implemented or, or utilised um, in providing a lot of solutions to, to, to quite old problems. It would be great to get a couple of examples. And and if you're looking forward, what other types of innovations do you see coming to to, to make farming impactful and, and also sustainable for farmers?
3: Thanks, Ozen. I mean, it is clearly an area of focus uh, for many, including Syngenta. And a a good example of a recent one uh, in Asia is um, late in 2022, Syngenta launched a partnership um, with uh, an image recognition specialist called Plantix, uh, and that's an AI-driven model. Um, So you know, and, and the scale is is quite significant. We're looking to to implement it in 750,000 hectares of farmland uh, in five countries, um, and applying to to really important staple cash crops like cotton, rice, corn, and wheat. And what this partnership does is it helps smallholder farmers uh, get access to a global database of 50 crops, 500 diseases, and we do that through um, uh, the Syngenta's Cropwise Grower app, which is an app that we have for farmers to help you know increase the knowledge um, efficiencies and provide the solutions for them. So, you know, the data behind that app um, helps with the provision of on-demand advice on agricultural best practices and crop protection solutions using AI. So it's as simple as this. Um, Farmers take a photo of the crop problem, and in real time, they're able to have that pest and disease problem diagnosed with 93% accuracy, which is pretty significant, through Plantix's algorithms that analyzes the image, identifies the issue, and then provides a recommendation about how to deal with it. And then to to build that capacity over time, those images are uploaded and geotagged. So over time, what we can do is alert farmers about early warnings with pest and disease pressures. When they're identified in areas of of significance to them, we can get ahead of it, which then leads back to the sustainable practices I mentioned before. Uh, Earlier use of the right product at the right time to get ahead of some of these problems means um, more precise application and better outcomes in terms of efficiencies and environment. So, I mean, these are very exciting innovations and there are Many others across the industry, not just that Syngenta is trying to drive, but I think what's at the the basis of this is you know simplicity, speed, and accuracy in terms of diagnosis uh, and and solution, but also you know things like weather patterns and when to apply particular products. it's It's very much about trying to anticipate and plan uh, more accurately faster so that things can be more efficient, more affordable and more sustainable.
1: You've certainly done an amazing job, um, Duke and Chris, of of highlighting the facts, the seriousness, the complexity and somewhat existential nature of the the problem that we're facing um, with food security. Uh, I think it's fair to say some parts of this podcast uh, will be depressing. So to avoid that, we would like to finish on a positive note and one that I hope is hopeful. So the question, put simply, to, to both of you, are you hopeful that we can address these issues and get back on track to not only alleviate hunger, um, but provide food security for the future populations on Earth? But of course, in a in a way that's sustainable. And and why do you feel this way, Duke? Maybe we can start with you.
2: Sure. Well, I am hopeful. I'd say, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think Chris mentioned earlier uh, about a silver lining uh, in the, in the, with one of the challenging issues we face. I think if there's a silver lining, what we're just pulling out of with COVID, the echoes of COVID, I'd say is that maybe there's a greater societal appreciation for science, the role that science plays. And, and I think when it comes to food security, food production, food systems – I believe that that those doors are opening. Those conversations are happening maybe a little easier than they were before. And I think that's a very encouraging sign. And uh, again, the role that science can play again in helping drive more robust, sustainable, resilient food systems. I'm I'm hopeful.
3: And Chris? Well, I'm not just hopeful. I'm also optimistic. I'll tell you the main reason behind that. And that's because at the heart of this are farmers. And in my experience, to a person, the farmers that I've engaged with um, no matter which part of Asia, in which country it's been in, the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience, and the care that they take about their profession is uh, it, it has really made an impact on me. They care about what they do. They know a hell of a lot about what they do, and they also want to continue to improve. Uh, yes, yeah, sure, for financial reasons, it's about livelihoods, but also um they know the important role that they play the critical role that they play in providing food for everybody in the world and doing that better is very much a, mo- a motivation for for farmers so with that uh, type of professionalism and I you know I want to sort of emphasize this point uh, it's a bit frustrating sometimes i get the feeling that that farming is not seen as a noble profession But when you consider how important it is to all of us and how every day each one of us relies on what farmers do for us, I couldn't think of anything nobler. Uh, It requires skill and dedication and commitment uh, and continuous improvement. And because of that, that's why I'm not just hopeful, I'm optimistic. It's challenging, uh, it's complex, but I think uh, the the determination is there because of the significance of the issue. So yeah, I think we'll get there.
0: Well, gentlemen, uh, one of the toughest topics at the moment, I think. And you've managed to do exactly what we asked and that's to put it simply for us. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Thanks
3: to you, both. Thanks, yep. you. Thank you.
0: And that's been this week's episode of Put Simply. I've been your host, Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrushim. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcasts platform and follow Aroka Group on LinkedIn for all the up-to-date information. Until next time.